Thank you, Jim. I'm Brian Sullivan. And tonight, Amazon delivery drivers in one critical market are joining the Teamsters Union. We'll soon more follow. Japan versus America. Are their car makers going in a much smarter direction than Detroit? Breaking developments from First Republic Bank's earnings with big implications for both regional banks and investors. Dark clouds ahead. One of Wall Street's biggest banks is saying sell on America's biggest solar company. And the Alphabet CEO getting paid millions for security. We'll show you just how much even his employees are being laid off. And Bed Bath & Beyond sees wild trading activity after filing for bankruptcy. What on earth is driving traders to do it on a stock that could go to zero? That and much more ahead in the next hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west and uh, happy dusk in the central and mountain time zones. We're going to get to all those stories shortly. But first up, Monday madness in media. What a 24 hours it has been. Tectonic shifts underway across the industry landscape with big implications for the media and for streaming wars. First was the sudden exit of NBC Universal Chief Jeff Schell following an internal investigation of an inappropriate relationship. That came out last night. Later on today, CNN parting ways with longtime anchor Don Lamont. But the biggest headline grabber, Fox News' Tucker Carlson shocking departure from the network. There are a lot of fast-moving developments on what may have led to it. We're going to have much more on that with an all-star panel of insiders in just one moment. But one thing we do know is that the news is delivering a significant hit to shares of Rupert Murdoch's Fox Corporation and its investors the tune of about a 3% drop today. What makes that particularly notable? Fox lost more than half a billion in market value today. Consider that it lost $787.5 million to settle defamation claims from Dominion voting systems. But the stock didn't move then. And given some of that $787 million could, we don't know, but could be covered by insurance, it is possible that today's move in Fox cost the Murdochs more than the Dominion lawsuit settlement. Also of note, the pop in shares of Rumble. That is the online video platform geared toward conservatives. It rose 6%, fueled, of course, by just wild speculation, right? just complete speculation that Carlson could eventually sign a deal with them, or he could not. Who knows? But people are selling one thing and buying the next. There's a lot of money on the line here. That's the point. So three big stories in a crazy day for the media and money world. But it's really Carlson's ouster with arguably the most wide-reaching implications for the media and investing, given the ad dollars, carriage fees, and just billions at stake. So let's talk more now about that because this story goes beyond just the media talking about the media. Let's bring in Puck founding partner Dylan Byers, as well as Mountain CEO Mark Douglas. Uh, They are a Mountain builds advertising software for brands to target through TV campaigns. Thank you all for joining us on, on Last Call. Dylan, I'm going to start with you. Fox is running ads, I think, as of this morning. That's what I read in the Washington Post, and Sarah Ellison may join us in a minute, the author of that. So this was clearly sudden. How much more is going to come out here? Oh, more will come out, and it was certainly sudden. The decision was made uh, on Friday night. 
by the Murdochs and uh, Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott. They held it over the weekend. And Tucker Carlson learned about it uh, this morning, uh, more or less not, not with much more advance notice uh, than we all did. Uh, look, the, the reason that this happened, we're all still searching for, for a concrete answer here, but it is tied to the discovery that took place during the Dominion lawsuit. And there's stuff in there, likely stuff that's behind the, the, the blackout redactions uh, that the Murdochs felt made them either legally vulnerable or was something in terms of Tucker's behavior that was untenable in terms of keeping him but at that's, the network. Dylan, but that, that's not new. That's, that's been known by us in the media for weeks and probably by others for longer. So the timing is just odd. No, no. What I'm, what I'm, look, Tucker Carlson goes on air and says a lot of conspiratorial things and, and, and runs right up against the line of defamation at some points. What he says on air is not what got him fired here. What was in the findings, there was plenty in the findings that I'm sure the Murdochs didn't like, whether it was him disparaging his colleagues or, um, you, you know, using pretty foul language when referring to Sidney Powell. Uh, but there was far more in terms of what was redacted. And somewhere in there, somewhere behind those redactions, there is something that the Murdochs concluded would not make it tenable for Tucker to stay at yeah. Fox News, either because it opened them up to too much legal liability or it, it effectively there was evidence of, you know, there have been allegations from a former producer, Abby Grossberg, about a toxic culture on his show. Something in there was the catalyst for doing this, because you do not get rid of your most popular primetime anchor, particularly at a moment when you are already concerned mm -hmm. about the drift of pro-Trump viewers to rival networks. And, and Mark, that's why we're talking about it here. It's okay. It's the media. Some of our viewers may, may hate Fox. Some of them may like it. Some of them may have no opinion. We'll leave it at that. This is a money story. And here's how it's a money story. We know what's happening in TV news. Cable subscriptions, they have gone down by tens of millions the last few years. Streaming, struggling to make money. You now have the ouster of arguably the most watched cable news primetime host, Don Lemon, obviously a big audience. He's now out. I would imagine advertisers are going to use this moment, right, where you kind of got the weekend platform to change or try to change the money game in TV news. Yeah, the, the these stations, Fox, CNN, I mean, that do political coverage, I think they struggle with advertisers already. Um, and so Tucker leaving Fox, I think, is arguably one of the best things to ever happen to Tucker. Look at Tucker, I think, on Friday, a typical Friday, his, has 2.7 million viewers. If Joe Rogan releases a podcast on the same day, he does 11 or 12 million. Ben Shapiro does 10 to 11 million every single day. So these these mediums, podcasts, videocast formats outside of the major news networks are actually much, much larger than the so news think, networks. Do you think, let me ask you this then, Mark, and I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to ask you to wildly speculate. Yeah. Okay, why not? Because sure. we don't, we don't, we don't really know. And Dylan, you could chime in on this as well. You know, a lot of people obviously that do not like Fox are saying, well, it's a big victory here. He's out. Could this have been Carlson's decision? Because to your point, maybe he does. We showed the stock of Rumble. It was up 6%. We don't know. He yeah. launches his own platform. He takes an equity stake in another channel. 
They, I mean, I'm hearing that it wasn't his decision, but let's put it this way. I don't think he's here. I think he's looking the amount of money, an interesting thing, Daily Wire, who a lot of folks probably don't know, a contract of theirs leaked a few weeks ago, how much they pay people. For someone who is nowhere near Tucker Carlson's level, they offered $26 million a year. So what does that mean in terms of what Tucker Carlson would be worth? To Rumble what? or to Daily Wire. 20, By the way, Rumble, it's million, equity and cash. $26 yeah. million a year? For what? Yeah, for a, a podcaster. A podcaster? Yeah. A yeah. Dylan. And you're talking... Yeah, and you're talking equity on top of that. Dylan, I mean, this is tectonic, right? I mean, we use that word at the top. I don't, I don't know if that's too strong. Is that TV hyperbole? No, not at all. I, I mean, look, Tucker Carlson is, in addition to being the most popular cable news host, is also just an incredible political and cultural force. And look, I think what Fox News would like, uh, would like its audiences and certainly Fox Core shareholders to keep in mind is that they've been through iterations where they had a Bill O'Reilly or a Glenn Beck, someone who re- who was really a star for them um, and, and sort of thought they were almost bigger than the network, uh, be forced to leave, and then Fox News continued to thrive. Again, I think this is a little bit of a different environment in light of the fact that you've already got some viewers who are sort of, you've already got a split in the Republican Party, and you've got some viewers who uh, obviously want something different than what Fox News can provide. So I do think they're a little more, more vulnerable here, particularly if Tucker Carlson goes out and joins one of these rival networks. That becomes something. But look, I, I think by and large, the story that Fox News has been able to tell through all of the various controversies it's endured is that it, 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 the institution is bigger than any of the on-air talent. I think that will be tested this time around. But that's certainly what they're hoping for, and that's certainly the message they're they're going to try to convey to audiences and, and to the market. You wonder if if Lachlan Murdoch, ostensibly he will take over for his father Rupert, who's ninety two years old. Mark is going to change the network in specific ways. Maybe try to pull a CNN, which is to David Zaslav is saying we're going to go back to the middle. We were over here on the left. We're going to go back to the middle. Fox maybe kind of swing back to the middle, and if so, would that even work? Would advertisers respond? Because a lot of people watch TV because they want to have sort of either their opinions validated or they just want to yell at the television. I mean, I think it doesn't matter that much in terms of the advertisers because ultimately they have a concentration of advertisers like pharmaceutical advertisers and others. And as long as the viewers are there, the advertisers will show up. So that's not really the key question. In terms of whether the institution is bigger than the star, I think in this case, everyone's likely to find out that that Tucker Carlson as a star is a franchise and he's bigger than the institution. Again, whether you like him or not, he bring he can bring a lot of viewers. If he can bring that many on cable, it's it's well, you know, you can expect a much larger number to be Dylan, globally worldwide. On, very on quickly, podcast. very quickly. Does, does cable TV news have a future? Because I'm saying this <laughs> on cable TV news. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, the answer is that it does not have a future unless it can figure out how to make itself appointment viewing on yeah. streaming. 
That, that's and it. All available evidence suggests that those steps have not been been taken in a serious way. Just just like this program, last call. I get yelled at by people on the left and the right. Maybe that means something good. Dylan and Mark, great conversation. Thank you very much. Do appreciate it, folks. This is a billion dollar media story. All right. Meantime, here's what happened to your money today and another kind of odd day on Wall Street. Stocks have basically been on a Sunday stroll for a couple of weeks now. You had mixed markets down the SP up a touch, NASDAQ down a touch. But as always, some stocks made or lost investors money today. First Republic and Albemarle, the two best performers of the S&P. We'll get more on them in a bit. And air conditioning heating company Carrier, the biggest loser, down nearly 8% and reports it may buy a German company. All right. Let's also take a look at futures, see how things may shape up tomorrow morning, or maybe not. How about this? They're not moving. They're very thinly traded. All right. We have just started the engine. Coming up here on Last Call, breaking developments out of that. First Republic Bank that have investors quickly changing their minds on the stock. Plus, is this Detroit versus Tokyo for American auto dominance? Why Japanese and American automakers seem to be going in very different directions around the car you may drive. Stick around. All right, welcome back. It is time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, if you like business like we do. Amazon delivery drivers have officially joined the Teamsters Union in California today. 84 workers, the Palmdale Warehouse outside of L.A., won voluntary recognition by the third-party group. It's called Battle-Tested Strategies. That is a delivery service partner contracted by Amazon to deliver your boxes. The agreement includes immediate wage increases and provisions around health and safety standards. Next up. The bank everybody wants to hear from, First Republic. Deposits fell tremendously in the first quarter of this year during the regional banking crisis. Depositors pulled more than $100 billion from First Republic after the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, and that had the stock diving after hours following a rally earlier today. But it may have been a little more than just that. CBC's Hugh Sun has more on this developing story, and arguably... The most important bank, maybe, in America right now. Well, yeah, you know, this bank was considered sort of the firewall to that contagion that, that happened last month with, with SVB and their collapse, and which is why all these other banks have poured billions of dollars in there to try to prevent that contagion. What we saw today was really how dire the situation was for First Republic. You mentioned the $100 billion in deposit drain. Um, that's what it would have been without the $30 billion injected from J.P. Morgan Chase and others. So that was the, you know, that was pretty bad on its own because that's, you know, not dissimilar from the scope of bank runs at SVB, at Signature Bank. Um, you know, the picture, the update they gave today is it seems to have stabilized. They've only lost 1.7% of their deposits in the last three weeks, which sounds like good news. I think the bad news is they're attempting to drastically shrink the business. Uh, you know, they're talking about cutting up to a quarter of their employees. They're talking about cutting their office space uh, and drastically cutting back uh, on their loan book. And so, and finally, one thing that you have to talk about is, you know, the, the CEO, Mark Ruffler, ended this really abbreviated 12-minute call, no Q&A. He ended it with uh, the sort of, you know, the idea that they're still looking for strategic options here, which is Wall Street speak, as you know, for we're looking either for a capital raise or we're looking to sell the place. I mean, you've got to repeat what you just said. They, their earnings call, arguably... The most important earnings call in this company's history. I, I don't think that's history, in yeah. forty year history. There's no way that that's not accurate to say that. They not only didn't take any questions. You said the thing was 
over and done in 12 minutes? Done and dusted in 12 minutes. No questions. No Q&A. That's probably why the stock is down. Uh, I mean, I think it Nobody, it's not the deposits. People are like, I didn't get any answers. It doesn't show a lot of confidence. Here's, a, here's another key tidbit from the call, which is part of their problem clearly is that they've lost so many in deposits, right? That's obvious. Everybody wants to hear about deposits. What, that's, what that meant is basically, you know, they've replaced some of, some of that, that money with high cost, uh, you know, borrowings from the Fed facilities. So you're, you're losing this, you know, this super cheap source of funding. You're replacing it with 5% funding from the Fed facilities. And that's really going to pressure their, their, uh, you know, their business going forward. Well, uh, sorry to type, but I want, let's bring that chart back up because the stock was, was down about 7% earlier in the session. If you're listening on the radio, First Republic is now down 23% in the extended hour. I'm looking at my CNBC charter, so forgive me. Don't show me on camera. I believe that would be another new multi-year or all-time low for the stock. If not, it's certainly darn close. They just lost another quarter of their value after hours. Yeah, I mean, the overall picture here is, you know, most companies that are down 90% are in some kind of existential issue here. One new thing that I'd like to add is, you know, they, and, and perhaps there's a note of skepticism out there. They talked about, look, we need to bring in new customers. We need to convince businesses and nonprofits and retail people to bring new deposits into this company. But how, how realistic is that? I mean, if you're a, a business owner, are you going to go to First Republic? Brian, there are 4,100 banks in this country, and this is the one you're going to choose. So that's sort of some of the questions out of this call. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have to do TV ads. Hey, I'm the CEO. We're fine. Your money's fine. I, I, other than that, you're right. It's a tough clawback. Houston, thank you. I have a feeling you may be the most read story tomorrow morning on CNBC.com. Just a wild hunch. All right, straight ahead. If you think there is no way America can default on its national debt, you may want to think again. That is not us. What the market is saying, that may be a troubling sign. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Hope you're having a great Monday. One reason the stock market may not be doing much lately is that everyone may be waiting for the debt ceiling issue to get resolved. This week, House lawmakers are set to vote on Speaker Kevin McCarthy's debt ceiling plan. McCarthy would agree to a $1.5 trillion lift to the debt ceiling, but attached to that would be a $4.5 trillion spending cut. Now, President Biden is taking a hard line, saying there should be no negotiation And the U.S. must raise the debt ceiling because it's the right thing to do. Although a little history lesson will tell you, as a senator less than 20 years ago, then-Senator Biden voted against raising the debt ceiling at least once and indicated he would do so at least two other times. That, by the way, was $20 trillion in debt ago. Anyway, is there really a chance America could default on its debt? Look at this. Three-month Treasury yields hitting their highest levels 2008. Investors are moving their money out of three-month bills because that is the maturity they view as most vulnerable to a potential default. And the credit default swaps, remember those? Yep, the measure of risk on default on one-year certificates of deposit have jumped to the highest level again since 2008. So it's not us. Basically, the macro market is saying that while the chances of default are small, maybe tiny, There is a chance. It's not zero, and it's growing. Coca-Cola CEO James Quincy spoke out earlier today on CNBC as to how the debt ceiling debate is impacting his company. 
from a Coca-Cola company point of view, we obviously have a very robust uh, balance sheet and access uh, to capital and cash. Um, but of course, you know, there's plenty, there's already enough uncertainty in the world. Um, so hopefully that it'll work itself through in, in terms of the debt ceiling. All right. Joining us now to break it all down is PIMCO, head of public policy, Libby Cantrill, and the American Petroleum Institute president and CEO, Mike Summers. And if you remember, Mike, in a previous life, served as then chief of staff to John Boehner during the 2011 debt ceiling showdown. So he's not just an energy guy. He's a guy that understands public policy and negotiation. Get to you in a second. Libby, I'm going to start with you. It's it, Listen, I, the chances of default maybe are like 1%, but they're not zero. The market is saying they are not zero. Yeah, that's right. Good evening, Brian. Uh, Yeah, it is not. It's not zero. Uh, That is right. I'd say that from a market's perspective, every time the debt ceiling is taken hostage by Republicans or Democrats, um, there is, of course, this very this tail risk, albeit very small. And what you're seeing investors do on sort of the front end of the curve here, as you said, is pile into the one month T-bill to avoid that uncertainty. Um, There there is actually more uncertainty about the so-called X date this time around, just because of when in the calendar this is landing. And so you are seeing some risk aversion from investors. They're just being prudent. There, many of them, like PIMCO, are fiduciaries. So uh, just trying to be prudent, not necessarily putting the thumb on the scale that default is is likely or, or that it's not a tail risk, which I think most folks would say it is. Um, but again, just trying to be prudent and avoid those maturities that may fall within the range of that X date when things can just get a little bit volatile. Uh, if not, of course, the risk of default may. may I, I bring up I brought up, Mike, that that historical note, because it's important for our audience to decide and understand that this is a political cudgel. The debt ceiling and has been for 20 years when the Republicans were in charge. Then Senator Biden said, we, 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 we shouldn't raise the debt ceiling. There's too much debt. The Republicans are spending way. And that was when the debt was at $8 trillion. Seems quaint. The president indicated no four. He would have voted no as well. Now, all of a sudden, he's in charge. Like, no, we have to raise the debt ceiling. This is just a political dance that, let's be clear, both parties do. And, man, they'll change their position on a whim. Well, Brian, as you've pointed out, the truth of the matter is, is that the debt limit has historically been used to get big things done in divided government. It's happened dozens and dozens of times. So the, the president's current position of not negotiating on a debt ceiling increase is just completely untenable. What uh, you know, we, most speakers are able to get some big things done as a consequence of a debt limit increase. So, for example, Speaker Boehner was able to extract spending cuts in each of the last six years of the Obama presidency. So this isn't an untenable thing that the that the House majority currently is asking for. What they're just asking for is to meet the moment where we need some deficit reduction when we have $31 trillion in public debt. So, but what we've been really focused on are what are the things that we can get done from an energy perspective during this debt limit battle? I think a perfect example of something that we should be able to get done is permitting reform. Republicans and Democrats agree that permitting reform has to get done. And I know that Speaker McCarthy believes this too. He's talked about permitting reform as being anti-inflationary. So at a time when we're still dealing with inflation and still dealing with debt and deficits, we think they should focus on some of these key energy policy well, reforms. Well, Mike, didn't we, t- correct me if I'm wrong, because you and I talk about energy a lot. Libby, I'll get to you and just back to you in just a second. Didn't we have 
Permitting reform, what we're talking about, folks, if you're not familiar, is basically the ability to get a power line built. You want to build a wind farm or a solar panel farm or pipeline, whatever it is. If you can't get the permits to do it, it doesn't matter if you have the capital, the investors, whatever, because you can't get the electricity or the gas or whatever it is from point A to point B. So it effectively becomes worthless. I thought we had I hope that was a good explainer. I hope I thought (laughs) we had, Mike, a deal on that in the original version of the Inflation Reduction Act. But then. Schumer and others sort of stripped it out? Well, the, the lesson of the last time we went through permitting reform is that if you want bipartisan report, uh, re- permitting reform, you actually need to have a bipartisan negotiation. And that negotiation that occurred in the last Congress was strictly between Democrats. And Republicans still had the ability to stop that in the United States Senate and in the House of Representatives. So what we have to do now is come together on bipartisan permitting reform that actually can get accomplished in the context of the government that we're dealing with right now. We're working right now with the utilities industry. We're working with the clean power industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we want to work with everybody. Uh, we, you know, this is also a concern yeah. for uh, semiconductors. I mean, they can't get their projects uh, permitted right now. So this is a real moment, I think. And Brian, I would compare it to something that you'll remember. In 2015, we were able to get the crude oil export ban lifted with Republicans in control of the Congress and Barack Obama in the in the White House. If we weren't didn't get that done in 2015, our studies show that we'd yeah. be producing about 2 million barrels fewer a day. Permitting reform there, could be that next big thing and if we get it right and we get uh, all sides trying together. To all, I, rem- I remember that. I was trying to remember who the vice president was at that time when we worked <laughs> together. Um, it'll come to me. Libby, here's the thing our audience may or may not understand. we got a pretty smart audience. It's not just the amount of debt that's the problem. It's that interest rates on the new debt is going up. And and America, instead of spending money on food safety and building roads, high-speed rail, energy, is just going to be sending it all to mostly either overseas debt holders, pensioners here, which is great, but the amount of money on interest is going to skyrocket. Yes, uh, we are. I mean, the CBO has already projected that the net interest uh, is going to start crowding out some of these other priorities, as you mentioned, Brian. And that is when it really this does become much more salient on Capitol Hill and much more of you know a political issue uh, for obviously it is for Republicans and likely will you know for for some moderate Democrats. Um, as well, I think from a just from a markets and investment perspective, though, you know, folks really just want to see that this debt ceiling issue resolved. Um, I think there are many folks who also want to see both discretionary spending, what Congress actually decides every year, but also really some meaningful entitlement reform as well to put us on yeah. a more sustainable fiscal trajectory. But Brian. Uh, really importantly, and I totally agree um, with Mike's sort of calculus that this, of course, is going to be a source of leverage uh, and that many parties have used this when they're out of power of the White House. However, from a market perspective, yeah. the markets just want to see this resolved and resolved in a relatively orderly way. So we don't go through kind of another 2011 or it, even a 2016. It probably will. Libby Cantrill, Mike Summers, thank you. We'll see. And by the way, in the next party, if another party takes control, we'll probably have the same fight, just in a different way. Guys, thank you. All right, still ahead. Japan's Toyota preparing to debut its new vision for a hybrid future. Could it leave Detroit's electric dream in the dust? Former Ford CEO Mark Fields joins us next. 
Doug, welcome back. Time now for the last call. Watch list. Some key stock stories you need to know about. First up is Albemarle. Albemarle was a huge story late last week when the stock tanked after the country of Chile said it might nationalize lithium mines. Albemarle's got a massive mine there. But if you watched us or listened to us on Friday night, and we hope you did, you know that we had the CEO on. And he seemed to calm the panic around the stock. Here's what he told us. They've made it clear that existing contracts and concessions for lithium will be honored. Our contract runs through 2043. So our, our current mine is secure through 2043. It is those comments that fueled Albemarle's jump today. The stock up 6%. As we like to say, we give you tomorrow's opportunities tonight or yesterday's opportunities tomorrow. Something like that. All right. On the other side of the energy story, a rough day for First Solar. Investors and shares of America's biggest solar maker lost 3% of their money today. It was likely because Citigroup downgraded their rating on First Solar to sell, calling the outlook, quote, challenging. And that all the benefits of the president's climate plan are already priced into the stock. The analyst calls First Solar, quote, the undisputed leader in domestically made modules for utility scale solar in America. That sounds great. But ask yourself this, if the leader, if the leader is facing such challenges, what might it say about everybody else? Well, let's go ahead and find out. Joining us off more is Vikram Bagri. He is the city analyst who wrote that report. And I was reading it this morning. Vikram, I opened it up. I said, holy smokes, you, you're talking about questioning the terminal value, I think it was, of First Solar. In plain English, our audience may not all be financial professionals at this hour. What is the issue with FSLR? So First Solar makes their panels slightly differently. All the competitors of First Solar use silicon-based panels, which uh, represents about 95% of the market for solar panels. Uh, the silicon-based panels, 40% uh, of the cost of silicon-based panels is linked to polysilicon prices. We think polysilicon will be oversupplied in market in a very significant way. We think uh, the supply of polysilicon will increase about 60 to 70% year on year this year and about the same amount next year. And the prices of polysilicon will drop uh, you know, from mid $20 per kg to about $10 per kg. What it does is it will lower the cost and the prices of competitor solar panels by 20 to 25%, whereas First Solar will not see those benefits because their panels uh, use a different technology, cadmium tellurium. Cadmium telluride is what they use instead of silicon. So their cost structure will not come down. They will not see the benefits of, uh, of falling polysilicon prices, which will make their uh, panels longer term slightly incompetitive relative to their competition. And their competition represents about 95% of the market. The first solar technology, the thin film technology, represents only 5% of the total uh, panel market. But, you know, here's the problem, I think, Vikram, for a lot of our audience, again, maybe not energy or financial pros, we're sending or spending tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in investment tax credits, and we're looking for this to power the future. How can we have such issues when we're sending this kind of fire, financial firepower at the problem? Or is it just simply impossible to compete with China and, and the labor practices they employ there? I think it's, uh, the bill is very effective in this way. It works for consumers. Uh, since the IRA was announced, um, you know, collectively, the industry has announced about 40 gigawatts of additional panel manufacturing and assembly capacity in the U.S., to put things in perspective, by the end of 2026, we will have 50 gigawatts of at least panel manufacturing and uh, assembly capacity in the U.S., 
while demand in US for those panels will be 45 gigawatts. So you're building a massive capacity. There will be a massive supply of uh, you know, availability mm -hmm. of panels in the US, which will solve a ton of supply chain issues we saw last year. The only thing it means is that for first solar, it will mean yep. increased competition and increased competition with suppliers who will have a lower cost structure. Vikram Bagri of Citigroup there. Big note of First Solar. Vikram, we appreciate you staying late and coming on. Thank you very much. All right, from solar energy to cars, because there does seem to be a big divergence in strategy between some of the Japanese automakers, at least Toyota, and Detroit. For example, Toyota is gearing up for its latest vehicle to hit dealerships. The 2023 Prius Prime can come as a plug-in hybrid. It runs on electricity until the normal engine has to take over, about 40 miles on a charge, kind of what you do 90% of the time, and then it goes to gas. It's a good-looking car, and get this. It starts at under $33,000 with the premium version starting at less than $40,000. Now, the car itself here is not the story. It's Toyota's plug-in push. They're a pretty smart company. Toyota's president just highlighted the value of hybrids, saying they are a, quote, practical way in which we can shift toward electrified vehicles. Toyota aims to redefine how hybrid vehicles are viewed and increase the range in EV mode. This seems the opposite of what Detroit is doing, which is in far more favor, it seems, of all electric and far more expensive cars. Let's talk more about this with the former CEO of Ford, and that is CBC contributor and our friend Mark Fields. You know, Mark, I've been posting a lot about this, and people think you're attacking electric cars. You hate this. You hate that. No, 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 no. I'm worried about Detroit. I got a lot. So do you. I have a lot of friends in Detroit. I love the American auto business. And I have to say, I am worried based on things I'm seeing and people I talk to that we're going in one way and the market may be going in another way. Please tell me I am wrong. Well, Brian, you know, you have to you can't uh, just uh, put Detroit all in one basket. Uh, if you look at the automakers and, you know, with with hybrids, I mean, to your point, plug in hybrids. They should be the perfect bridge between traditional internal combustion engines, uh, vehicles, and the electric ones. Uh, and, and so you have a number of manufacturers. You mentioned Toyota. Uh, they've been talking about their hybrids, which is, uh, which is kind of an in-between uh, type of vehicle as we transition to electric vehicles. But then if you look at Detroit, to your point, you have somebody like GM that's doing a full pivot to full electrified vehicles. I actually think that's a bit risky versus, let's say, Ford's strategy. You know, they are going to be offering, they offer today, and they're going to be offering uh, plug-in hybrids going forward. And I think that's important because, you know, listen, they have advantages. They're, to your point, they're, they're less expensive, takes away range anxiety, and it gets people at least yeah. their toe in the water around electrification. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got a friend that owns an F-150 hybrid, and I've got a friend that owns an F-150 Lightning. And it's great to be able mm -hmm. to compare and contrast. And I'm telling you, based on what they said, it's for me, if I was going to buy one of them, not hybrid, 100% of the time and twice on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's, there's, there, it's, it's just when you think about all the products that are coming online, you know, the two big uh, inhibitors for customers have been cost and, and range. And then the third one is the charging convenience. And as these products come out, you know, you've seen these surveys of, you know, 40% of the population will consider an EV. They'll say that now, but when it comes time for mm -hmm. them to really purchase their next vehicle, they're going to do the homework and they're going to look at costs and you see costs coming down and the incentives from the government's helped. But when you look at the charging infrastructure, it's all about convenience for the consumer. Yeah. And when you look at these hybrids, it's a nice solution 
to allow us to get on our way to eliminating fossil fuels, but not all in one go. I, my eyes have been open because I've been in the market poking around and all these things are coming up and I'm reading Road and Track and Car and Driver and reading Reddit and reading this and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, a lot of questions still. Mark Fields, you helped us answer them. We'll have you back on soon. Thank you. All right, Thanks, on deck, Mark. the CEO who just got a $228 million payday, including millions for personal security. But why? It's next. All right, time for your RBI. And on this crazy busy Monday, today's RBI is about a crazy big chunk of money, actually a bunch of crazy big chunks of money, all at the same company, and that is Google's parent company, which, of course, is called Alphabet. Now, Alphabet's CEO is a gentleman named Sundar Pichai. You may have seen him on 60 Minutes recently talking about artificial intelligence. Smart man, but also a really well-paid guy. Late Friday, Alphabet quietly dropped an SEC filing that showed that Pichai was paid $226 million in total comp last year. $218 million of that is from a stock grant, $2 million in salary, and $6 million in compensation for what companies are now calling personal security. Pichai's prodigious payday comes also when Google is laying people off. Companies said 12,000 people are being let go. And there are even reports that Google is forcing things like making workers share desks or slowing down how people can get a new computer because new computers aren't really necessary to tech companies. All this, by the way, as the stock got crushed last year. Google investors lost about 39% of their money. Now, listen, the stock grant is one thing. It's happening more and more these days. Pichai, not the only one, earning generational wealth from stock grants. Apple CEO Tim Cook got $750 million in 2021. It's becoming commonplace. What stuck out to us, though, are these increasingly high costs, not just at Google, but others, for personal security. Alphabet paid $6 million to Pachai for security. Okay, $6 million bucks. That's $16,500 for every day of the year. If you're just counting work days, that would be $23,000 per day in security or $960 per hour, 24 hours, Monday through Friday. At $960 an hour, how many security guards is that? You got like 42 German shepherds running around and having to feed them? Well, the odd thing is that Pachai's securities costs are less than half that of Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, who's given $14 million per year for personal security, despite spending a lot of time on a remote Hawaiian estate. Who knew that being a Fortune 500 CEO was being a, such a high-risk job? Because these are things that we didn't pay for just about five or ten years ago. You almost never saw it. All right, speaking of tech, four mega cap companies are reporting this week. The just mentioned Alphabet and Microsoft kick it off tomorrow. Meta following suit Wednesday, Amazon on Thursday. Here now to break down what we can expect is Sarah Kunst, Clio Capital Managing Director. And Sarah, I'm not going after Pachai, but Alphabet just released this, so I looked at it. And by the way, this is also a company that, in your words, not mine, has whiffed on earnings like the last four quarters. They have, you know, and I think, look, there is certainly an increased amount of, of you know, probably security risk as, as we live in a world that's that's pretty crazy. But, you know, those amounts seem high. That being said, you know, look at the numbers, the earnings numbers, because those are the ones I'm interested in. And I'm not sure it's going to be great. I, I do think 
you know, that Google's getting going to continue to be a huge player in AI. I, I don't think that the market's quite priced in how much expertise Google has, Alphabet has in AI and, and what they've built up, you know, both in their hardware investments as well as, as BARD, their GPT competitor. So, you know, I, I think that this could be an interesting kind of year or two mm-hmm. as the AI play out, but the cloud business doesn't look great. And, you know, they just keep missing on earnings. And, you know, listen, Amazon has is unprofitable. It's been unprofitable since the dawn of Amazon time and whatever that was, 96. Nobody's ever cared. Will they start to care? It is the most favorite unprofitable company in the history of the world. And I don't necessarily think that changes. You know, we've seen a lot of talk uh, today about, you know, retail, about the big kind of impending closure of a bunch of stores. Um, And the reality is that if it's getting harder to run a brick and mortar store, that probably benefits Amazon because they are very good at getting things to you with Amazon Prime. And, you know, they're certainly, you know, continuing to, to make efforts in AI. They're they're not in the same place that a Microsoft or Google is. But, you know, that's a a game that they want to play in as well as cloud. So I'm not sure that we're going to see any big downward swings. Big week next week. Can you just imagine how much money these CEOs would make if their companies actually made money? I would hate to see the paydays. I'm just jealous. Sarah Kunz, Clio Capital, thank you. I'll lose money for a lot less than that. All right, now let's head to quicker than the ticker. Stories off the front page, including some scary fire stuff. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. ESPN is laying off staff members as part of Disney CEO Bob Iger's larger plan to lay off 7,000 workers across the company. A person familiar with the matter told CNBC ESPN would eliminate fewer than 100 jobs this round, but more to come. Speaking of Disney, a giant animatronic dragon caught fire at Disneyland. The fire-breathing dragon, part of the Fantasmic show, which Ironically, breeze fire during the performance, burst into flames for reasons still unknown. Two engine fires for American Airlines, one caused by a bird strike forced an emergency landing in Ohio, the other a plane engine that caught fire on the runway in North Carolina due to mechanical issues. Thankfully, nobody was injured in either incident. Did you see them? The northern lights were visible across 18 states last night due to a strong geomagnetic storm. So gorgeous. And sweet green salad fans, listen up. Company's launching a paid loyalty program called Sweet Pass Plus. And that's all the time we've got. All right, coming up, Bed Bath and Beyond Bizarre. Why some traders still keep buying shares of the bankrupt retailer. Tom Saza joins us next. All right, welcome back. Another once popular retailer may soon be ready to close up shop for good. Bed Bath & Beyond filing for bankruptcy, saying it plans to begin closing its remaining 360 stores nationwide. News triggering an epic plunge for its shares, tumbling by more than 35% today. But take a look at this. Despite the bankruptcy announcement, 515 million shares of BBBY traded hands today. That is more than three times the 30-day moving average. We bring this up because, remember, for every seller... There has to be a buyer, which means a lot of people were buying Bed Bath & Beyond stock today, even though it could very well go to zero. Let's talk more about it with Tasty Trade founder and CEO Tom Sosnoff. And yeah, stock went down, Tom, but there were buyers. Is it because people made money on Hertz when it went bankrupt? What's going on? Well, it's because people it's because people think for 20 cents, 
it's an asymmetrical opportunity. You know, it's a, it's a, it's the, it's the definition of a cheap shot, right? That's but, really what it is. And, and it might be, right? You just buy a bunch at 20 cents and hope for the best. And if you lose the money, you lose, but you could make a lot. But explain to our audience how a stock could go up, even with the company underlying the stock going bankrupt. Well, it's really hard. I mean, I would say that in, in almost probably 95 to 98% of these cases, these these companies go bankrupt and there's nothing there. I mean, people look at this purchase. I mean, like anybody who's buying stock down here, they're looking at it. Well, I can buy a thousand shares for $200 or I can buy, you know, I can consider this like an, an option that never expires. But I think, you know, it, that, that's all it is. It's just, it's a, it's a cheap upside shot. I, I can remember going back into the early 2000s. I think American Airlines traded in the 20 cents you know, when they were threatening bankruptcy, traded in like somewhere in like under 30 cents. I don't remember if it got down into the 20 cent area, but, you know, and that thing turned around, you know, and, and so maybe there's some stuff like that. And Hertz did the same thing, but it's really rare, Brian. It doesn't yeah. happen very often. These are people just taking a, a super cheap shot. Yeah, because even if even if let's say they get some kind of a quote rescue or an investor or a bailout, the equity is probably gone. So it won't. It's like, oh, oh they got yeah. some investor. The, the investor will just kill the stock. It'll have a queue on the end of it, and they'll just keep the stores open. I mean, it's the same reason people play penny slots. You know, I mean, it's the same exact thing. This is just, you know, this is the cheapest play on the board. And also, think about it this way. There's no commissions anymore for stock trading. So if you want to take a shot right here and you wanted to risk a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars, you can buy a lot of stock. And, and if you can squeeze just on a rumor, you know, three, four, five, ten mm -hmm. cents out of it, it's a pretty good trade. So, I mean, from a from a, you know, if there was commissions, I could understand it. But since there's no more stock commissions anymore, you know, I, it's a cheap shot for people. And I think that that's the whole play. I mean, 500, half a billion shares traded today and not very many options traded. So I think this is just purely yep. the, hey, we're just, you know, we got a free shot to the upside. That's all it is. Be careful out there, folks. Tom Sosnoff laying it out in plain English. Appreciate it, Tom. Thank you. Have a good night. All right, Jane Fonda is best known for her Oscar-winning performances and anti-war activism. But 41 years ago tonight, she became a fitness guru when she released her first workout video. Who could forget these amazing aerobics moves and jazzercise classes? It's no prancer-sizing, but hey. Fonda's workout video sparked the aerobics boom of the 80s. It also popularized the concept of group workouts, particularly for women. Fonda recently told Elle magazine that she still works out to her VHS tapes every day. Fantastic. Fonda's 82 workout tape went on to be one of the most popular exercise videos of all time, selling more than 17 million copies worldwide. How about that? All right, well, you don't have to go home. But you cannot stay here. This is your last, last call for tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Shark Tank is next. Have a good one.